Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the radio show. I'm Miriam Knight. And, you know, I think that anyone in touch with the modern world has their adrenals on overdrive, particularly every time you turn on the news. So our guest today is Nora Gedgaudis, who has written a book called Rethinking Fatigue, What Your Adrenals Are Really Telling You and What You Can Do About It. Welcome, Nora. Thank you, Miriam. It's such a pleasure to be here with you again today. After it's been a little while, but it's it always has a joy been a little uh, talking while. with you. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Nora, dear listeners, um, is a <laughs> widely recognized expert on what is popularly referred to as the paleo diet. She wrote an international bestseller called Primal Body, Primal Mind. Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and Longer Life. She's an experienced nutritional consultant, speaker, and educator, and she has a private practice in Portland, Oregon, where I just happen to be located. She's a (laughs) board-certified nutritional consultant and a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist. And um, she has a popular podcast, which is available on her website, primalbody-primalmind.com. So, Nora, we have all the promo out of the way. Let's dive yeah. in. I'm so well, glad to have most you back. Of it, most of it. There will be more. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it, it's an honor to be here. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's um, you know, I've, I've been working in the stress biz now for uh, for quite a long time, a good 20 years, and I've, I've managed to see a lot of it come and go. And, you know, in my book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, I, you know, I talked certainly a little bit about adrenal problems and, and, uh, and I presented that whole subject much in the manner in which it was presented to me through, uh, a lot of the lecturing I had gotten over the years and all the, you know, the, you know, the basic research from the available information on adrenal dysregulation. And I, and uh, although I do think that there's definitely some extremely helpful and worthwhile information on that topic in my book that you might not find most places, it turns out that this whole idea of, a, of adrenal burnout is actually kind of a myth. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, of course, something, we, you know, we'll be covering today. But um, but I've had the opportunity to see what, what stress can do, you know, and uh, to people, and, and it seems to be the primary sort of modus operandi for, um, you know, for illness uh, in, in in many respects. It's it's a great uh, trigger for those things. We, sure. We live in this profoundly and ab- uh, just how stressful of the world we live in today is. And, you know, our stress management capacity can absolutely make or break our health and we can see we can be seemingly even doing everything else right and just mismanaged stress by itself can totally unravel you 
So what stands mm-hmm. between this modern-day stress monolith that we're all facing and, and our health is in significant measure the health and the quality of our adrenal function. We really do need them now, I think, more than we ever did before. Well, I think it was Hans Selye who um, sort of yes. set the bar in the 50s for the whole notion right. of adrenal fatigue. Now, you yeah. know, this, this points, just let me just make one point, oh, which totally, is yes. that um, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians get an education, right? And then they think right. they have their shingle, they go out and they practice medicine. And a busy practitioner doesn't always have time to keep up with the latest research. So it's really important right. that people like you come along to update the science because science right. does get overwritten by new science and people need right. to understand that. Well, you know, the, the, you know, the physicist Max Planck, and I, I don't have his exact quote in front of me, but I can easily paraphrase it, you know, basically said that science tends to advance one funeral at a time, you know, that, you know, that the, you know, sort of the existing, uh, you know, establishment, so to speak, gets very wed to its ideas. And, uh, and then, you know, progression from there becomes extremely difficult. There are new ideas come along all the time and people are either financially invested or their egos are invested or they just, are so invested in what they learn that they can't begin to comprehend a different way of looking at things, so they automatically disregard it because it's not established science. But science mm-hmm. isn't the last word. It's the latest word, right? And, mm-hmm. and Hans Selye, you know, he, he was the father of the study of stress physiology. The guy was a brilliant endocrinologist and a Canadian, so you have to love that. Um, but the guy, he was nominated, you know, I'm a Canadian too, uh, by birth, but he was nominated more than once, you know, for the Nobel Prize. So this guy was no slouch. He knew what he was doing. Uh-huh. It's just that this was all new to him too. And his model of stress, what he hypothesized, involved these progressive stages of adrenal exhaustion. And it was accepted for many, many years as the standard in natural health circles. And it's still being taught today. I mean, most of the books that are out there on the subject of adrenal problems are kind of largely couched in Selye's theories. Uh, you know, and I learned it on, I learned it early on too, you know. But it's really, when you look at, at the science of stress physiology today, you realize that Selye's ideas were, are really no longer accepted by the current science due to the advancements in our understanding of stress physiology. In other words, most of natural medicine is still kind of in the 1950s with respect to adrenal issues. Of course, you know, know, conventional medicine is still in the dark ages. Um, But, um, you know, what what he hypothesized was that, or what he, you know, proposed in 1956 was that the stress response basically had certain progressive stages. There was this alarm stage where cortisol was automatically high and this resistance stage where it could either be high or low. And then there was an exhaustion stage where cortisol is chronically depressed at that point, you know, last nails in the coffin, poof, adrenal's gone, whatever. And then he broke this down into seven different subset progressive stages. And, you know, if you take an, a- if you do an ASI, you'll get one of these stages. They'll tell you what stage of adrenal exhaustion you're at. And um, it's not true. And it really doesn't work that way. 
Um, in fact, it turns out now that we have much more affordable testing uh, that is much easier to do, that a person can literally go into elevated or depressed cortisol patterns almost literally overnight. You know, mm-hmm. and for some folks, you know, um, you know, some fortunate folks who apparently have, you know, signaling systems made of steel, you know, they can be exposed to chronic or even severe levels of stress and it never changes. So Selye's model is basically a glandular model of adrenal dysfunction. And it, you know, and it turns out that almost nothing related to adrenal dysfunction is actually a glandular problem at all. And, you know, that's where the, the whole myth comes in. Okay, right? so, so carry most, on. What, what are yeah, the drivers? Okay, all right. I'm happy to carry on. Yes, <laughs> for hours and hours I can carry on. Um, so I'll rely on you to police me a little bit because I, I'm quite passionate about this. And, and a lot of, I think it's really important because stress is such a major part of our lives. We need to understand this. Most of what is thought of as adrenal dysregulation isn't glandular at all. You need to realize that. Almost none of it is glandular at all, and that's the myth. But you have to understand that the the adrenals are just simply, you know, two little hormone factories, you know, sitting on on top of your kidneys, and they basically just go about doing what they are told to do by your brain. And so, um, so what you're really looking at more often than not are these brain-based mechanisms of dysregulation that result in faulty signaling to the adrenal glands or, or poor integration somehow of cortisol rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was a study done uh, back in 2007. I mean, this is, you know, information's been around for a while now. It's just this, most people aren't tapping into it. And a guy by the name of Bruce Sherman McHugh, and he did a lot of the kind of the early research in this area. And there was a, a study called Physiology and Neurobiology of Stress and Adaptation, the Central Role of the Brain. And in it, he says, the brain is a key organ of the response to stress because it determines what is threatening and therefore potentially stressful, as well as the physiological and behavioral responses, which can either be adaptive or damaging. So the, there are at least four areas of the brain involved in regulating your adrenal function. Most people are somewhat, if, if they're at all kind of dialed into health-related stuff, they've done any reading on this topic at all, they've heard about the HPA axis, right? The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Mm-hmm. That aspect of your brain controls the amount of cortisol that your Mm -hmm. body is going to be producing at any given time. Then there's a structure in your brain called the hippocampus, which is part of your temporal lobes. Your temporal lobes basically uh, kind of move laterally along the side of your head, right over your ears. And that part of your brain is important for integrating cortisol circadian rhythms. And then there's a part of your brain called the mesencephalic um, midbrain. And that part of your brain controls the amplitude of your adrenal response. And then there's your pineal gland, which is, of course, the part of your brain that produces melatonin. 
And cortisol and melatonin are always operating in opposition to one another. When one is up, the other's down. When one is, uh, you know, when the other one's mm-hmm. down, the other one's up. And so if you're not able to make enough melatonin or you're making too much or whatever, um, you're going to have some dysregulation occurring there. There is another mechanism still involved in adrenal dysregulation that we'll get to, and that is, I don't know if I should touch upon it now or if we should just get to it after we talk about the brain stuff. Because we we are going into a break. Yes, we are. Well, that question got answered. Yes, it did. (laughs) (laughs) We are speaking with Nora Gedgaudis about her book, Rethinking Fatigue. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You know, what you said in the first part points out that the body is this complex interactive mechanism. And you're talking about all these different mechanisms that have uh, an effect. And it really annoys me that the pharmaceutical industry is always trying to push the pill that will solve your problem. So let's try and get into all the different things we need to do and take into account. Well, that's, you, go, you know, th- there's, there's the rub. Yeah, there's the rub, Miriam, that, you know, the, the human body is this complex system of interrelationships. And unfortunately, we're still kind of stuck today uh, as a society in this Newtonian of everything being uh, made up of separate objects. And, and, and medicine was constructed with that Newtonian model in mind with, different areas of specialty focused on different parts of the body as though they had nothing to do with one another. You have a psychiatrist over here, you have a gastroenterologist over there, you've got a urologist in this end, you know, you've got, you know, whatever else, you know, it goes on and on and on, endocrinologist, whatever. And ultimately, these these different areas don't tend to talk to each, I mean, you know, within the field of medicine, they don't really communicate. You show up with a thyroid uh, with thyroid symptoms, and they, they send you off to the endocrinologist um, uh, as though it was purely an endocrine issue. And, and it's, you know, it's anything but just an endocrine issue. That's a whole other interview. Um, I could rant about that for a couple of hours easily. <laughs> <laughs> really. Well, I mean, we'll it's, it's a very misunderstood thing. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. we will. Because um, that's important, too. But the fact is, is that I think what defines life, what, what brings life to things, aren't the individual organs and, you know, and tissues that we have as somehow being compartmentalized away from one another, but it's the interrelationships. It's communication. It's the same thing that makes a society ill is the same thing that makes your body ill. It is a breakdown in communication that occurs. And the whole mm-hmm. idea is understanding that there's a complexity of these interrelationships that has to be appreciated and brought to bear. And it takes, it's a lot more work in, in a lot of respects. There's a lot more to take into account. You have, there's a lot more subtlety involved. But there's no possibility of restoring health without taking the complexity of these systems into account because, you know, you can't take a pill to affect one part of the system and, and expect that that's the only thing that's going to be impacted by that pill. It doesn't work sure, that but- way. It's, but is there a hierarchy? But it's highly profitable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, yes and no. I mean, all of these things have to work together in some form of, of, of concert. Now, mind you, the, the, you know, the brain and the nervous system are certainly kind of the central 
uh, kind of computerized relay station, although the brain really isn't a computer, but it gets it gets painted that way. But but it does tend to kind of field and help to uh, to regulate a lot of what goes on with respect to it's it's our it's our primary sensory organ. It's how we interface with our environment, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's the brain that is poised to tell us whether or not uh, we're in danger. And if there is a hierarchy, uh, then what lies at the very top of that hierarchy always is survival. Everything about mm-hmm. our physical uh, manifestation in this world is about um, survival and whatever is going to best facilitate that. So your brain is constantly on the alert for what might be what might be stressful, and you know it, it may help a little bit to define stress a bit. Uh, because stress isn't what happens to us necessarily. It's how we interpret what happens to us. And sure. how we interpret sure. what happens to us depends a lot on our inherent perceptions about the world around us. And those perceptions are in turn regulated by this lens. I, you know, I, I, I frequently talk about the idea that we see the world through a lens that is our hormones, our neurotransmitters, the degree to which we choose to be enslaved by it, our blood sugar. Um, and yes, it's a choice, but that's another topic too. Um, and and the relative state of regulation or dysregulation of those systems is going to determine how it is we interpret the world around us. If you wake up in the morning and you're in a hypoglycemic funk, it's human nature to want to make sense of that somehow and and and, and say, okay, why do I feel like crap? Hopefully, I can say crap. Um, and and you're automatically, you're, you know, your brain is going to go to work to try to find an answer for you, but it won't necessarily be a good answer. It'll just be some mode of explanation. And since we think of everything in the world as being psychogenic, and that's another thing we're conditioned to think, if we're depressed, it must be because we have an awful life. You know, we all have things that are wonderful happening in our lives at any given time that we can feel wonderful about. We all have things that are extremely stressful or frightening or whatever happening in our lives we could be stressed out about on that level. Um, And what it is we choose to focus on largely depends on how that lens happens to be focused at any given time. What is influencing the focus of that lens? And so um, emotions are little more than simply biochemical storms in the body and brain. And the what makes up our, you know, they're, they're molecules, right? You know, the molecules of emotion, as Candace Pert used mm-hmm. to, uh, you Pert, know, yeah. to talk about. Yeah. Did I did I say Candace Pert or did I say something else? We both did. Oh, we both did. Okay, good. I thought maybe I said something else. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, those molecules um, basically come from whatever it is we choose to feed our bodies at any given time, right? Everything in our body is made up of the building blocks that we um, that we provide it with, all of it. And so the quality of our nourishment and the nutrient density of our nourishment and making sure we have sufficient nourishment and that we're not polluting our bodies with things that are counterproductive um, to its best physiological functioning are absolutely key toward a balanced emotional state. Blood sugar dysregulation is going to be the first thing that is going to complicate any problem that you have, whether it's adrenal-related or anything else. And so, you know, and, and we'll get to this maybe a little bit more in a bit, but but that 
is um, well, I suggest it's one of the first things I start looking yeah. at. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that well, really is key, yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the keys. It's one of the keys. So, so here's the deal. You know, your brain sends messages to your adrenals from, you know, from what's called that HPA axis that we touched upon earlier, where the messaging is sent through these specific areas or, or, or nuclei within, you know, the hypothalamus from the, from, from the brain, right? And these nuclei activate your adrenal glands and cause them to release glucocorticoids or, you know, mainly cortisol, which is what we're mainly talking about here, but also certain catecholamine neurotransmitters like epinephrine and norepinephrine, you know, in emergencies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so basically, so here's the basic sequence, and that's pretty well understood now, but there's actually more to it than this. But your hypothalamus responds to stress by your perception of stress by releasing corticotrophin releasing factor okay that's that's a hormone and that signals your pituitary to produce adrenocorticotropic hormone which then stimulates your adrenals to release cortisol so there's a whole you know kind of string of signaling systems involved there so basically inputs from neurochemicals like neurotransmitters or inflammatory compounds to what are called the paraventricular nuclear cells of your hypothalamus. And don't worry, I'm not going to get overly geeky on you. But that helps determine your cortisol output that your adrenals produce. So if the input is too much, like say there are too many excitatory neurotransmitters, if, 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 if there's excessive input and, if, and that exceeds inhibitory input, then your result is going to be excitatory or stimulating, right? So too many stimulants, too much stress in your life, too many, you know, too much working out or exercise, too much burning the candle at both ends, all of that can potentially lead to this scenario. But if the input is more inhibitory instead, then your cortisol output is going to be inhibited for better or worse. So it turns out that infections, for instance, and certain types of inflammatory compounds or what are called cytokines can have a huge dampening effect on these PBN cells. So say, for instance, you have a flu bug. Your body's going to produce interferon as a way of, of um, generating natural killer cells that are designed to go out and battle these invaders, you know, the, the, the virus or, or the parasite or, you know, the infection of whatever kind. And, and it turns out that interferon has a profoundly dampening effect on your hypothalamus. So lots of people are walking around loose, for instance, with cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr or, or maybe Hep C or, or some other, you know, chronic viral infection they may not know of. Uh, I, you know, I've run into people who had chronic uh, parasitic infections for years they didn't know about. And these things, um, you know, if they go and they get their adrenals tested while they're, while they're going through all that, for starters, they're going to be, they're going to feel a little tired. They're going to feel a little, you know, ragged out. It's going to be hard for them to deal with stress because their hypothalamus is dampened from being able to produce enough cortisol. It's also not producing enough of the neurotransmitters that help them feel good. So they feel crummy and they're trying to figure out why. They go and they do an ASI, an adrenal stress index, and they try to, you know, look at their adrenals, and their adrenals look like they're tanked. It's like, oh, your adrenals are burned out. Oh, gosh, I guess I've just been burning the candle at both ends. No. <laughs> you know, there, there's an infection. And, you know, their naturopath or whoever will hand them all, you know, a shopping bag full of supplements, you know, adrenal supplements or whatever, things to support the adrenal glands, and it does nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a waste of money and a waste of time. 
because they didn't deal with it on the, on the level in which it was actually occurring. Now, how do you know if you have chronically low cortisol if you haven't tested for it? Well, you're going to feel chronically fatigued. You're going to have a decreased tolerance to the cold or stress. You're going to have crappy circulation. Um, you're probably going to have perpetually low blood sugar uh, symptoms. You know, you're going to be you're going to feel hypoglycemic. You're going to be craving sugar all the time. You're going to be craving caffeine and stimulants. You might have really low blood pressure. You might be depressed. Um, you may have joint joint aches and pains that comes along with it, and things like muscle weakness, or you may have these need, this need for excessive amounts of sleep. And then you know you take your you know uh, your body temperature. You know, Broda Barnes talked about checking your basal temperature and things like that, and it'll be kind of low. Um, all of these things can point to low cortisol function, but that is not uh, adrenal burnout necessarily at all. And uh, you've got to deal with it on the level in which it exists, okay? So, you know, you could have infection or inflammation that are leading to that decreased hypothalamic output. You know, I mean, any kind of infection or disease process, tumors, things like that, can also have a similar effect. If you have been getting, say, a corticosteroid treatment, for an inflammatory problem or you're an elite athlete and you're using steroids and then you suddenly abruptly withdraw from them, it's like, okay, the infection's gone. You don't have to take those anymore. You know, you've disrupted the signaling of your natural cortisol in your body and it's going to tank for a while. So that can also lead to low cortisol. Mm -hmm. And then insufficient cholesterol, you need cholesterol, you need vitamin A. And autoimmune disorders can also be a problem. So I just want to leave it at that for right now. (laughs) Okay. And then they put labels on like fibromyalgia that they don't understand. Okay. Well, that's that's a a trash can diagnosis. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Stay with us. We'll be back right back. So, Nora, this sounds a bit like a game of pickup sticks. How do you go about (laughs) winkling out the 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 real underlying causes and how and what do you do about it well i'm glad that you asked because um that's exactly what my book rethinking fatigue was designed to do uh i i was i was being bombarded with people coming in and talking about adrenal burnout to me when i when i knew full well that that wasn't really what was going on and that we had a little detective work to do and i'm not really able to take clients on one-on-one so much anymore and so uh, what I did was I created this book as a way of basically being able to kind of hand over my, my personal process, you know, to whoever needed it. And what it provides you with is a way of screening for the type of adrenal dysregulation that, um, or the combination of the types of adrenal dysregulation you may be facing and also what the necessary steps are that you need to consider in addressing that both with respect to the type of testing you should be seeking out, but also the type of, for instance, supplements and and, and dietary considerations and things like that that can help kind of put your, you know, turn your adrenals around and and put them on the road uh, to recovery. And, you know, this bleeds over into so many other different areas. You know, a lot of women, uh, as they age, you know, they are – uh, they're struggling with hormonal issues, you know, female hormone issues. And the thing to understand about that is is that 
is that steroidal hormones in general, they're like a family, right? They function together and they dysfunction together. You know, and, and our adrenal hormones are, again, and I'll reiterate, and I can't overemphasize it enough, they are all about survival. So the need for survival is always going to take precedence over everything else, including sex hormone production and DHEA. So say if you're being metaphorically, you know, chased by saber-toothed tigers um, all day long, how much priority is your sex hormone production or DHEA going to be to your body? You know, and if you're metaphorically, um, you know, you know, being chased by saber-toothed tigers all day, uh, how is the health of your sex hormones or DHEA going to look after a while? There's this phenomenon referred to as the pregnenolone steel, which is a little bit of a technical term related to the entire steroidal pathway. But what it basically means is that that pro- hormonal production tends to shunt steroidal um, it, it itself away from sex hormone production under stress, under duress. And that can lead to very big problems in uncomfortable symptoms in menopause for women and androgen deficiencies in men. So, you know, the most, uh, you know, the co- common cause of depressed testosterone in, in men is actually something called aromatization, but that's, that's a whole other subject. So, but you can look, you know, you know, at it, at it that way, that, that if you're subjecting yourself to chronically stressful circumstances, your body's not going to really consider, you know, something like sex hormones and reproduction, you know, a, a particularly uh, imp- important thing uh, to prioritize. And, uh, and so, um, and then, you know, the, the unfortunate thing that happens is that people then start running out and slathering themselves with hormone creams, whether they're bioidentical or otherwise, doesn't matter. I, I think that's a big mistake. Actual hormone use of any kind should always be a last resort because otherwise what you're doing is you're screwing up feedback loops and digging yourself into a much deeper hole that's going to be much harder to get out of. Now, one of the other things that can occur is um, that a lot of people are running around with cortisol levels that are sort of over the top. And, uh, you know, in that particular instance, uh, you know, people, they're not going to necessarily feel like their energy is tanked, although they may not feel perfect, uh, fully rested after they sleep at night because, for starters, they're probably not going to be producing enough melatonin if the cortisol levels are being constantly driven up. It'll also make it really hard to recover from physical activity because one of the things to understand about cortisol is that it's a catabolic hormone. It breaks things down, right? Mm-hmm. And so anabolic builds things up, catabolic breaks things down. And cortisol will make it very hard for your body to recover from anything. It also tends to lead to abnormal, either abnormal weight loss due to uh, problems with, uh, you know, leaky gut that it can help perpetuate, or weight gain, abnormal weight gain um, is really common with excess cortisol. Uh, it, you're going to find that you're commonly maybe more fatigued after meals. Um, you're going to have an oddly, you know, elevated fasting glucose, your hemoglobin A1C. I've seen people even on extremely low-carbohydrate diets go pre-diabetic only because their cortisol levels were so persistently high. In that case, I mean, it's, thank goodness they're on a low-carb diet, but, but the uh, cortisol by itself 
can drive you into a diabetic condition. People with excess cortisol may have a lot of nervous energy. They're going to have a lowered resistance to infection because excess cortisol will suppress your immune function. Your sleep is not going to be good. You're likely to have GI symptoms because your, your gut cannot regenerate in the presence of excessive cortisol. It also needs enough uh, you know, for, for healthy function, but too much is definitely going to not allow it to regenerate. And the most critical thing to realize about too much cortisol and the most, uh, perhaps the most egregious effect are the potentially neurodegenerative effects that it can have. Um, particularly in an area of the brain that we alluded to earlier called the hippocampus. Um, the hippocampus of your brain is responsible for mitigating your stress response. It's also, you know, the part of your brain that is responsible for, um, um, you know, integration and, and conversion of short-term memory to long-term memory and learning. That's the part of your brain where acetylcholine is produced, which, which you need for optimal cognitive functioning and memory. But this is also the very first part of the brain to deteriorate in Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And that delicate part of your brain was never meant to be marinated in cortisol 24-7. It has the richest repository of cortisol receptors of any other area of your brain. And so it is especially vulnerable to the impact of stress over time. And, you know, the symptoms of this regulation there, which is another, this may be actually the most common form of adrenal dysregulation I see, in fact, it's the most troubling. And this is something you need to take very seriously. Tend to include, you know, problems with falling asleep or staying asleep, having, you know, energy crashes in the late afternoon, real difficulty getting going in the morning. That's often coupled with real problems winding down at night. You're going to have memory problems. You're going to this. Is, you're going to be the person that always forgets where you put your keys, your cell phone, or whatever else. Or, you know, you'll forget uh, your name, you know, or your friend's name in the middle of a sentence. You know, difficult. You'll have difficulty maybe learning new information and just forgetfulness in general. You know, ongoing issues there can lead. Is this reversible? To an increased. Re well, it depends. Um, it depends. So on, on how soon you catch it, right? If this has been going on for years and years and there's been uh, the neurodegenerative process has been allowed to progress past a certain point, um, cells may not be able to be revived. You know, one of the things I was doing as a neurofeedback uh, clinician is, is always making sure, almost like a multivitamin, that everyone had some form of temporal lobe training. Uh, during the course of their of their of their training process with me, because you know, in order to wind down the excitatory activity in that part of the brain and give that part of the brain a fighting chance to be able to recover, you know, that part of the brain is critical also for neurological and emotional stability. If you have somebody that's really prone to mood swings and reactivity and all of that, you're probably looking at a hippocampus that's not too happy. And uh, getting that area of the brain wound down by any means available is incredibly important. This is where supplementation can start to come in handy because the adaptogen, uh, adaptogenic herbs, um, you know, things like Siberian or Ulithro, you know, ginseng and ashwagandha and, and uh, uh, you know, holy basil is, you know, as, as sometimes called, and and. Uh, uh, shizandra and uh, maca and things of that nature 
have tend to exert their activity more on a brain level of helping the body to mitigate stress a little bit better. So those are actually quite useful. But people that have hippocampal degeneration need to be supporting their their acetylcholine production, you know, and there's supplements like alpha-GBC-choline, you know, and, and, and different things that help support acetylcholine production that can be extremely helpful. Uh, phosphatidylserine is a nutrient that has actually shown in some clinical research to have a regenerative effect on the hippocampus. Uh, there are other things mm-hmm. that can help as well, uh, but it, it takes anywhere between 800 to 2,000 milligrams of phosphatidylserine a day over time to really exert these measurable effects on, on, on the hippocampal integrity. Mm-hmm. You've got to deal with the stress issues that you've got coming in. You can't keep you know beating your arm with a baseball bat, put a cast on it, and continue to beat it and expect it to heal. Um, you know, you've got to take those steps. Meditation is something that also can have uh, a restorative effect. You know, there's something that doesn't cost anything on hippocampal integrity uh, if you do enough of it. So, uh, but you have to take those things very seriously. Uh, you've got to address, now, this book is, you know, a lot of, yeah, go ahead. This book is is an e-book only, correct? Yes. Yes, it is so only it, an e-book. Um, yes. And it's called and, Rethinking uh, it's Fatigue. Avail- yes. Rethinking Fatigue, What Your Adrenals Are Really Telling You and What You Can Do About It by Nora Gedgaudis. Okay. Yeah, and I'm they so can get it you on your website? <laughs> yes, through my website, primalbody-primalmind.com. Uh-huh. And you will find a link to the book there. And, you know, it's, it's available, uh, you know, certainly through Amazon and, and what have you. Um, but it, it's designed to be a very practical and actionable guide to really help guide people through determining what is actually going on and, and, and you know, and where in their brains. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mentioned, I touched upon, too, the, uh, the mesencephalic midbrain. Oh, I see we're going to a break. Okay. We'll get we to are that. going to a break. Yes. And I really do want to commend Nora's book because it's a wonderful reference with lots of links in it that you can follow up and take to your own practitioner and work with your practitioner on it. So stay with us and we'll be back with our final segment. Today, my new dad threw a barbecue. I burnt everything. And then we played catch. I broke Mr. Lewis's window. And then, somehow, my hand. My hand! And then my dad even let me drive his car. The hospital's on the right! It was a rough day. It was a great day. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of kids in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. I think the ad we just heard is a great example of how the same situation can be perceived very differently by different people and why some people will be stressed out over it and some people will find it absolutely delightful stress. So um, getting back to the book, one of the things that you kept on referring to in the book, Nora, was the interplay between blood sugar levels and cortisol and and 
your uh, reference to the paleo diet, the ketogenic diet. So can we go into that a little bit since it's the last segment? Yes. And I know and it, that you, yeah, carry on. Oh, yes, and we could easily go another hour on this. But one thing I do want to tell <laughs> your listeners, and one of the things I put together for your listeners uh, just for tuning into this show is I created a little bit of a summary document um, that will help people kind of, it, it doesn't replace the book. It's not going to tell you everything to do, but it will kind of give you an overview. It kind of, it's sort of like taking notes for the show. Um, and if you go to primalnora.com or paleonora.com, they both work. Um, you can go retrieve that special gift there just for tuning in to Miriam's show today. So I just kind of want to provide you with that because I realize it's a little like drinking out of a fire hose listening to me. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I wanted to be able to supply uh, the information in a little, you know, in a fairly structured and, and easy to follow so, way. So what is the but, document getting back called? to sugar? Oh, it's not. A, it's just there. They can go to that. Oh, it's they there. go okay. to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it'll be there. Okay. They'll, they'll, they'll know what to do when they get there. So, but the thing to realize is that diets that are really high in sugar and starch, which is 98% of people's diets in this culture, and also poor or regular eating habits that can lead to a real roller coaster ride where you're constantly using your adrenals to manage your blood sugar because cortisol is your primary blood sugar hormone. It's not insulin. It's cortisol. And it's there to try to elevate your blood sugar when it gets too low, right? Because it thinks there's an emergency. Mm -hmm. This is about emergency survival. It's the surest way of screwing up your adrenal function or just about anything else. And there was, there was uh, um, you know, one, one paper there that I think kind of, uh, the title pretty much also sa says it all. But I want to read you the, the, uh, the, the title of the thing. It says that higher glucose levels are associated with lower memory and reduced hippocampal microstructure. And the study's conclusions were basically as follows. They said that our results indicate that even in the absence of manifest type 2 diabetes mellitus or impaired glucose tolerance, chronically higher blood glucose levels, in, including normal high glucose, it's still normal, but it's higher, exert a negative influence on cognition, possibly mediated by structural changes in learning-relevant brain areas. In other words, primarily your hippocampus. It, 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 is, it is a fast road to neurodegeneration, dementia, and Alzheimer's. I'm here to tell you. Wow. Um, nothing wow. is more damaging or destabilizing to the brain than a diet that is high in sugar and starch. And there's also, there's nothing more stabilizing to the human brain than a diet that in the absence of sugar and starch is higher in, in natural dietary fats. And, uh, you know, I go into that in a whole lot more depth. In, I have an upcoming book uh, that's being published by Simon & Schuster called Primal Fat Burner. I think the website may have just gone live, um, but primalfatburner.com you can check out. You can also check out rethinkingfatigue.com, which will take you right straight to the book, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to Primal Body, Primal Mind, Primal Body hyphen Primal Mind dot com, you will basically find a lot of, of other things and resources, uh, you know, to that you can benefit from. And, and almost everything on the website, I mean, except for the books, obviously are free, but lots and lots of very useful information. But yes, sugar is a problem, and you know, stimulant seeking either through substances like coffee or nicotine or excess exercise like some people do, or looking for external stimulation. In other words, people are always looking for that adrenaline rush. These are the people you see bungee jumping out of airplanes and Mountain Dew commercials. 
you know, that is another way of con- of driving your adrenals in a way that, you know, anything that elevates cortisol and yes, low mm-hmm. blood sugar and, you know, and ups and downs in blood sugar is going to create surges in cortisol that are damaging to your brain and to a lot of other systems in your body. Um, it, it's going to be it was- dysregulating over time for sure. I thought your analogy of uh, carbs being like twigs. Um, yeah, and... yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Carbohydrates being basically like metabolic kindling, right, for your metabolic mm-hmm. engine. Um, there, you know. So, so yes, you can look upon your so-called and, and alcohol healthy... being like jet fuel. Right, right. Well, yeah, like yeah. like like lighter fluid on the fire, right? Right, um, right. So, so your so-called complex carbs that are supposed to be so healthy for you and the basis of the human diet, you know, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I'll point out, no, no conflict of interest there, right? Um, you know, your whole grains, your beans, your brown rice, your sweet potatoes, your, you know, mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. like that are basically like twigs on that metabolic fire. Then your white potatoes, white rice, um, and, uh, uh, you know, bread and pasta and white potatoes and things like that are really much more like crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. And then I mentioned, you know, gas, you know, that that uh, not gasoline, but but alcohol, uh, most forms of alcohol and also, you know, just sugary beverages and things like that are really like throwing lighter fluid or gasoline on that metabolic fire. And if all you had to run your metabolic in a wood stove all day long was that type of kindling, you could certainly do it, but you would be a slave to that wood stove. Well, who benefits from that kind of slavery, really? Who's profiting from that? Um, But what's the alternative? Well, what if you were to take a nice big fat log and throw that on the fire instead, right? Now suddenly you're free. You can sleep through the night without waking up to a freezing house in the middle of the night metaphorically. And yes, there's an analogy here. Um, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you peer in the box in the morning, you know, in, in the wood box and it's like, oh yeah, okay. You know, this, the fire's burning down. I'll just throw another log on the fire. You can go about your business and not be overly preoccupied with where the next handful of fuel is coming from. And this is where fat-based ketogenic approaches to eating that minimize, uh, the intake of carbohydrates in the, in the forms of sugar and starch. We're not talking about fibrous vegetables and greens. We're talking about sugar and starch-based foods. It, it, it has an enormously liberating um, brain-enhancing effect that really cannot be gotten any other way. There isn't a pill you can take to take the place of a healthy foundational dietary approach of that nature. And Primal Fat Burner will walk you through all that. It'll even have recipes and all kinds of things, but um, uh, and a meal plan and a whole, you know, a lot of information. But but getting so, what back, if you've had your gallbladder taken out? Right, right. So it's still possible. And, and that's, it can be a whole other involved topic, but what I will touch upon is the fact that, you know, your problems with your gallbladder didn't go away just because your gallbladder did. The first thing you need to do is figure out what dysregulated your gallbladder in the first place. Do you have a thy- underlying thyroid issue? Have you had a diet that has been really high in, in lots of you know, processed foods and fats, or a diet that's overly low in fat, like fat, like vegan diets and, and things of that nature, or your kind of conventional, supposedly heart-healthy, low-fat diet, which isn't heart-healthy at all. Um, uh, you know, my father dropped dead of a heart attack eating a low-fat diet. Um, hmm. And so you have to kind of figure out 
Uh, and he was, by the way, he wrote the textbook in cardiovascular radiology. So I mean, it wasn't like he didn't know what he was doing within the context of his profession. He just didn't understand oh, the same things we're talking about here. Yeah, whole other subject. So, um, but but having no gallbladder means that you've got to figure out first what went on because you really do have to kind of correct that problem, whatever it is. And I, I will talk about that in Primal Fat Burner. But the other thing you've got to do is you've got to find yourself a source of bile salts. Now, ox bile is the way it's sold in most health food stores. You can go to a healthcare practitioner. I know Biotics brand, which is a, a healthcare practitioner brand, has a, has a product called Beta Plus, which is a, a, a very good bile salt product. And you basically take that with fat-containing meals um, for the rest of your life is what you're going to be stuck doing because you've lost your capacity to produce sufficient bile to handle any reasonable amount of dietary fats. And this is a big problem. Fats are, are not just simply about calories or even the macronutrient itself. It's about fat-soluble nutrients. It's about essential fatty acids that power your brain. It's about the, the fat-soluble nutrients that regulate your immune function and, and uh, mitigate inflammation that you can't live without and that you can't get by eating carrots and drinking green drinks. It's not there. So um, it's really important that you address that. You have to. And you absolutely can benefit from this dietary approach. But there are steps that you're going to need to take that most people having healthy gallbladders just simply won't. But if you have a gallbladder and you're experiencing gallbladder attacks, you're experiencing, you know, pain under the right side of your ribcage after you eat, lots of indigestion, and you feel like you're intolerant of fats, you've got to deal with that. Deal with it fast. And, and you might have to stick to a lower-fat diet until you get the kind of support that you need to get that functioning well again, deal with any stones that might be there through the whatever natural means possible to dissolve them and there are lots of approaches for dealing with those that don't involve a scalpel but once you get one of those stones lodged in your bile duct then all bets are off you're on your way to the emergency room and you don't have much of a choice at that point anymore so you want to head that off before it happens for sure excess estrogen that's another cause too of biliary dysfunction sometimes taking hormone replacement therapy being on the pill for a long time or just the estrogen sea of estrogens that we all live in consuming too many you know things out of plastic containers and being exposed to organophosphate pesticides and things like that you've got to figure it out and that takes a good functional medicine practitioner to help you do that right Oh, wow. It feels like we are going through a gauntlet of challenges to mm -hmm. our health. And I really recommend that you get Nora's book, Rethinking Fatigue, What Your Adrenals Are Really Telling You, by Nora Gedgaudis on her website, body-primalmind.com. And remember her freebie at primalnora.com. Nora, thank you for being with us today. Miriam, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> it's Thank all you mine. for having Thank me. Thank you. <laughs> and stay, yeah. join us next week. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.